You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. The evidence of things not seen. His father then began to explain to his young and curious son, that our faith is manifested not only in our beliefs, but also in our actions and our attitudes. You know, walking in faith is much like a pregnant woman. It's much like a pregnant woman who actively prepares for the arrival of her baby without knowing the exact due date. You see, the substance of her hope is within her. It's the baby. (laughs) But the substance of her hope is also manifested or is evidenced by her preparation. And what many married couples or women who have given birth know as the nesting period. Today, as we look at our passage today, I want you to consider this question with me. The question is simple, but the question is quite concise. This is the question. How do we walk in faith knowing that Jesus' return is imminent? How do we walk in faith knowing that Jesus' return it's imminent. Will you please pray with me? Father and our God, we do thank you for this time you've given us. We thank you, God, for this preaching time. We pray, Lord, that you would hide me behind your cross. Let your people see you and not me. May the words that are shared be from what thus says the Lord. We thank you, God, as always. I ask as always, Lord, that you would take my little and make much of it. Glorify yourself. Allow some soul to be saved. Allow some mind to some mind to be conformed to the image of your son. We ask that your advancement of your kingdom, Lord, that we would serve as a church that seeks to advance your kingdom in South Louisville and beyond. We praise you and thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for that. I like that enthusiasm. Last week, Jesus told his disciples that he would come back and that his second coming would be visible for all to see. You see, he, the Son of Man, will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, according to verse 30. And on that day, it could be today, could be tomorrow, it could be a thousand years from now, but on that day, the angels will gather Christ's elect from the ends of the earth. So the question remains, what does Christ's imminent return mean for our lives now at this moment today? In other words, how should the reality of Christ's return affect the way we think, affect the way we feel, affect the way we act and we respond right now here today February 7, 2021. 
Now, last week, Jesus graciously answered the disciples' question, when will the temple be destroyed in verses 4 through 34? And this week, he answers their second question, which is, what will be the sign of your second coming? Verses 36 through 44. And before we get into the nuts and bolts of the things, we have to remind ourselves of three important things. Number one, we have to remind ourselves that we find ourselves in the middle of a conversation. Last week, again, was the question about the destruction of the temple, and Jesus went through very great detail to provide explicit instructions of what was going to happen and what has happened, even in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. We have to also remind ourselves that Jesus will soon be crucified for the sins of men and women throughout human history. So this is a very, very important, crucial time for Jesus. If you will, Jesus at this point of his ministry has laser-like focus looking to the cross of Calvary to culminate and to seal his mission on earth to die for human sins, but to be raised in victory from the grave. Yet before he died and rose from the grave, number three, the third thing we need to remember is that he graciously, Jesus graciously prepared his disciples for his departure, promising them that he would soon return. And that's what we're looking at this week in verses 36 through 44. The question again, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Notice here that Jesus' words and instructions are clear. And consequently, he provides seven facts for us to consider regarding his second coming. The first fact is this. We first need to recognize that his coming will be delayed. Verse 36 says it this way. It says, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither angels of heaven nor the son, except the father alone. Notice with me that Jesus doesn't know the day and hour of his return. No one knows except for the Father in heaven. Now, I know my theologians out there are looking at me and, and with puzzled looks because last week, even in our time with Dr. Allison in the 54 truths, we learned that Jesus is omniscient. He, he, he is all-knowing of all things. Love how David Platt explains this phenomenon of how Jesus could be limited to this knowledge. He says these words here. He says, here we see the genuine humanity of Christ. For he humbly chose to take on the limitations of knowledge that other men have, though he himself simultaneously remained omniscient and fully divine. It's a good reminder for us this morning that Jesus' statement is a reminder that no man, regardless of what he claims, knows the timing of of his second coming. Notice with me that not only is this a secret held by God alone, notice with me the theme of delay that shows up several times in chapters 24 and 25. Jesus describes in Matthew 25 verse 5, a bridegroom who was delayed in coming. He says in Matthew 25, verse 5, when the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. 
He later tells in Matthew 25, verse 19, he tells of a master who waited a long time to settle accounts with the servants. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Notice with me that all these examples imply a long delay. I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning. How do you respond to God's delay in your life? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever been frustrated with God's delayed timing in your life? Have you ever questioned God's delay? I know I have. And I'm I'm looking at many people that I'm sure has questioned that as well. And I want to encourage you this morning. There's hope for you because you're not alone. David himself speaks of his own frustrations with God, with God's delayed timing. He talks about it actually in Psalm 10, starting in verse 4 through 6. He says these words, In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks There's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. So he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, this is the wicked man who says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and he will never see. You know, this is a good reminder for us this morning as a church family. I'm talking to believers here when I say this. But I I think it also applies somewhat to those who are yet to believe. It's a good reminder for us that God's delay is not always a denial of his goodness. Let me say that again. God's delay isn't always a denial of his goodness. Sometimes God's delay is a is the very sign of his goodness. Because in his delay, he confirms his love. He confirms his affection. He confirms his devotion towards you as his child, that he is a sovereign king and he knows what's best for you even when you don't. I remember God's delay for me almost two years ago, trying to move here from New Jersey flying in to preach two times a month, going back to work New Jersey Monday through Saturday or Friday, and then flying to come to Louisville, Kentucky to preach and be here at the church Friday through Sunday. I remember going through 20 different houses around the city looking for the place that God would have me and my wife to live. And I remember we finally came to a house on Huckleberry Drive, a beautiful home that we definitely thought that was our own. We were excited, y'all. We, we were really excited about this house. We 
start taking pictures in front of it and putting it on Facebook. Now, when you put it on Facebook, that means it's real, right? I mean, that means you, you're about to sign the papers, right? I remember going and taking my wife to see the house for the very first time. I've already seen the house because I was traveling. And I remember her going through the house and us going downstairs and me looking at her and saying, baby, aren't you happy? This is our house. And looking at her face with utter disappointment and tears streaming from her face and seeing that the house was much smaller than we had anticipated. And the things that we thought we saw in the pictures were not a a real reality. (laughs) We got an inspection done and found out that there were some foundational issues in the house. That if we would have signed that very very day, that that would have been our responsibility. Up to almost $30,000 in payments we would have made in addition to monthly payments. I tell you that sometimes God's denial it's not God's denial is not always a denial. Deni- excuse me, God's delay isn't always a denial of his goodness. Sometimes God's delay is a, wi- a way to guide us from what's good to what's best. <laughs> sometimes God's delay is a way for him to remind us that he's in charge and we are not in charge. <laughs> Sometimes God's delay is to keep us on our knees a little bit longer and not be praying that God would just give us something from his hands, but we will be looking at his face, loving him and worshiping him for who he is and not simply for what he does. I'll say it again. God's delay isn't always a denial of his goodness. Sometimes God's delay is a sign of his goodness. So how how should we respond? How should we respond to the delay of the Lord? First, we need to recognize his coming will be delayed, but second, we need to remember that his return will be sudden. Look with me in verses 37 and 39. He says, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. See, to make his point, Jesus refers to the days of Noah prior to the flood when people were eating and drinking and marrying. And everything, in other words, everything was normal. <laughs> everything was as it should have been or they thought it should be. And then all of a sudden, a flood came and swept everything away. Jesus says, in a similar way, That's how it's going to be at Christ's second coming. Look with me in verses 39 to 42. It says these words. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand meal. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Notice with me that once Jesus returns, 
It'll be too late to rethink your life, and it'll be too late to rethink your priorities. Why? This is the third thing that Jesus shows us, that his judgment will be irreversible. So what, what's the difference? I hear someone, Reverend Fields, Pastor Fields, what's the difference between Jesus' judgment and a human judge? I mean, I mean what's so special about God's judgment? See, in a human courtroom, the judge asks for the prosecution and defendant to provide ample evidence in order for him or her to make a verdict. However, when Jesus comes, his very presence will serve as the evidence to convict men of their sins of unbelief. In other words, Jesus' physical appearance will serve as evidence of both his righteousness as well as his resurrection. His physical appearance will be all the evidence that is needed to convict men of the sins of their hearts and the sin of unbelief. Notice how Jesus will judge us. Our fourth point here, our hearts will be exposed. Matthew 10, 26 puts it this way. It says, therefore, Jesus talking, therefore, don't be afraid of them since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered and nothing hidden that won't be made known. Notice all the things we like and presume to cover up, all the things that we want to be remain hidden will be made known. What will be exposed by Christ? Upon his return, there will be two things that will be exposed, things that will be condemned, the things that we have done, but also the things that we've neglected to do. Theologians call these two things, uh, two different things, and they're defined and help us understand the two types of sin that there are. There are sins of commission. Sins of commission are things that are sinful acts that are done intentionally. They're done proactively. Biblical example of this is Cain killing his brother. Cain didn't kill his brother and thought, oh, snap, I just just committed murder. (laughs) When, When he plotted and when he called his brother out and when he grabbed that weapon, whatever it was, and when he intentionally had his brother look away, and when he intentionally took that weapon and struck his head, that that weapon over his brother's head, he knew what he was doing. So we have sins of commission. This is not hard for us to think about. We know these type of sins. We commit them often. There are things that we know that we should not do, but we still do. These are called sins of commission, but there's also sins of omission. See, sins of omissions are committed due to our negligence of doing what we know is right. Biblical example of this is everyone, every character named except the Samaritan in the Good Samaritan story. Everybody knew what was right to do. They saw this man bloody on the street, but no one took the time to do what was right except the Samaritan who not only took care of the man, but he even 
footed the bill so that every one of his expenses would be accounted for. James 4.17 puts it this way. It says, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. So what will be exposed? How, how will expo- he'll, so, he'll expose our sins of commission, those things we've done with, and with a great intention or, or knowing. But he also will expose the negligence of, doing the, of not doing what is right, what we know is right when given an opportunity to do so. So not only will our hearts be exposed when Jesus returns, but Jesus warns us that our lives also can deceive us. So first, his coming will be delayed. Second, his return will be sudden. Third, his judgment will be irreversible. Fourth, our hearts will be exposed. And fifth, we need to remain humble knowing that our sentence may be surprising. Notice with me in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, read these words that Jesus speaks He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Notice with me that they... There may be many people, even under the sound of my voice, who think they are eternally safe when, in fact, they have not submitted to the lordship of Jesus. It's a good reminder for us that we need to stop asking people the wrong question. It's not a question of when you first believed. The question isn't about when you first believed or when you first got saved or when you first got baptized. That's not the question that we need to be asking in the church today. But the question that we need to ask is, are you believing today? Are you trusting today? Is Jesus your eternal hope today? Are you resting on the eternal arms and the blood of Jesus for your righteousness, your salvation, your, vindic- your vindication before God, is that true of you today? Not 20 years ago, not 30 years ago, not one month ago, not two weeks ago. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of your, of your life? Are you believing? Are you trusting Are you living for, are you submitted to, are you committed to the one, the man named Jesus? Now, let's be honest. This is one of the most frightening passages of all the scripture, especially for those who like to pretend and wear the mask of hypocrisy. Now, now if you're confident in your relationship with Jesus, then let me tell you, my brother and sister, you are in a good place. <laughs> I love the song where we just sang a little, a little bit ago with Pastor Nick saying that, that all of our trust is in, in the blood of Jesus. Like there is no other hope found outside of that. If you are, are saying that today, you're in a good place. If you're afraid and maybe even concerned about what I'm saying right now, let me say that you're in a comfortable place. Because listen, someone who is not trying to follow Jesus wouldn't find these words concerning or even being afraid. It's a good sign. 
But my question is still remains to you, even in your fear, are you trusting in him right now? And are you trusting in him today? If you're, conf- conf- if you're confident in being a good person and, and being known by your good works, and listen, you're in a bad place. <laughs> That's not the place you need to be. Your good works won't save you. You being a good person, I don't care how many times you go volunteer at the food shelter. I don't care how many times you go to the school to read to the kiddos. I don't care how many times, how much money you give to the greatest organization of philanthropy even in the city of Louisville. Doesn't matter before God. If you're apathetic, if you're nonchalant, if you're carefree, if you're indifferent or even hard-hearted, be warned that there's no pretending with God. You can fool me because <laughs> I'm human. <laughs> you can probably even feel fool your community group leaders. They're human. You can fool the deacons. You can fool your mom or your dad, but you cannot fool God. Thank God that there's no pretending with him. In church, once we realize that there's no pretending for him, what it does is it invites us to a place of authenticity with him, to be honest with him, to be real with him. Pretending to be something we're not is much like my sons when they were little boys playing in daddy's clothes. <laughs> My sons had a habit of when I was out of town or traveling, they would come in my room and put on my shoes and they would get my belt and uh, twist it five times, not five times, maybe three times, I'll say that. (laughs) Three times, two two times, two times, two times around their little waist. I don't want to give myself away my waist size. Pretending to be something you're not is like playing in daddy's clothes when he's away. You can have all the fun you want while he's away. But when daddy comes home and when he unlocks that door and he enters that home, all the playish stuff that you once did goes away. (laughs) Because daddy's home and not only daddy's home, but daddy's there to fill those shoes. He's there to be all that you have pretended to be, but you're not. Let's not pretend to be something we're not before God. God is big enough to accept us in our weakness, and he's big enough to accept us in our failures. He's big enough to accept you as you are, not as you pretend to be. And I hope that word is freeing for someone this uh, this morning. God loves you because he loves you. Not because you got it all figured out, not because your Instagram account is hot, has so many hits, not because your TikTok game is phenomenal. God loves you because he loves you, and he sent his son to die for you and to resurrect for you, and he's coming again for you. Why is it important not to pretend? Why is there no pretending with God? Look with me in verses 40 and 42. This is point number six, because our lives will stand alone. 
Verses 40 to 42 says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill, one will be taken and one left. Notice with me, notice, please notice this fact. Notice with me that everyone is doing the same thing, but everyone is not serving the same Lord. Two men are in the field, one taken, one left. Two women are grinding at the meal, same thing. One, one taken and one left. Love what David Platt says again in this commentary about this. He says, it doesn't matter who you're around on that day as homes, neighborhoods, communities, and nations will be divided among two groups, those who truly know Christ and those who do not know Christ. On that final day, it won't matter what home you're in, whom you're married to, or what your parents believe, your life will stand alone. Your life will stand alone. So what's our proper response to these realities and how should we respond to this truth? Look with me in verses 40 to 42 to 44. This is our seventh point. We must be prepared. We must be ready and we must keep watch. He says in verse 42 to 44, therefore be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Brothers and sisters, that's the point of Matthew 24 through 25 in a nutshell. Last week, the warning from Jesus to his disciples was, was threefold. You remember it? Don't be deceived. Don't be dismayed and don't be distracted. This week, the warning from Jesus to us here today is to keep watch and be prepared. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to keep watch? We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be prepared? Let me go back to that verse that we talked about earlier, Hebrews 11, verse 1. I love how, excuse me, I like how the Christian Standard Version puts it. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. New King James Version says it this way. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Then the NIV puts it this way. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and the assurance about what we do not yet see. We said earlier, love this, these three different versions, because I think it gives us a full picture of what it means to walk by faith. He says, faith is the reality, faith is the substance, and faith is the confidence of what we hope for. But it's also the proof, it's also the evidence And it's also the assurance of what we have yet to see. It's a both and here. It's not not an either or. It's it's both a a reality of what's hoped for, but it's also evidence of things that you yet don't see. Walking in faith is like we said earlier, a pregnant woman who actively prepares for the arrival of her baby without knowing the exact due date. I know doctors give us some times, but I think 
Mothers can raise your hand that sometimes that baby comes when that baby want to come. Amen. <laughs> that due date is good, but it's just an estimation. It's not always accurate. Walking in faith is like a high school student who endures countless hours of AP classes without yet receiving his or her first college acceptance. Walking in faith is like a basketball player shooting 500 shots in an empty gym just to be able to make 10 shots in the next game. Walking in faith is like an athlete actively lifting weights and running extra sprints on an empty field with no fans. It's like a single person withstanding the worldly temptations of his or her singleness as an expression of worship to God and as a sign of faithfulness to their future spouse, if God so allows. Walking in faith is like a parent who constantly reads the Bible to their children every day, not knowing if they will ever trust, truly trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Walking in faith is like a wife who constantly prays for her unbelieving husband. Walking in faith is like a husband who serves his wife, who's actively battling cancer. Do you see the similarities in each of those, in each of those uh, illustrations? The, the, the reality that they want is not yet seen. They, they haven't obtained it, but yet they work for it. They, they're preparing for it. They're, par- they're preparing for something that they, that, they, that, that they don't have right now, but they're preparing for it because they know if I prepare for it, eventually it will come. This is what God calls us to do in walking in faith. Walking in faith is not sitting in a pew being idle. Walking in faith is not looking and condemning every single thing that happens in this pulpit or in this church. Walking in faith is being actively engaged in the kingdom that God desires to be expanded in South Louisville and beyond. Faith is an action a hope. It's a hope of a reality that you know is coming, but you just haven't seen it yet. It's preparing. So preparing yourself for a gift that God has promised to give, even though you don't have it yet. Walking in faith is living a life of faithful obedience to God, his word, and his church while living out the ordinary aspects of life. We define this even in the vestibule in our, in our little area. Someone uh, drew uh, a beautiful portrait of this, of ordinary obedience. It's not done in the, big, in the big grandiose things of this life. It's done in the everyday, ordinary choices and ordinary obedience to God, to his word, to his church. Notice with me that our, eyes should, our lives should not be lived with intentions. Notice with me that our lives should be lived not just with intentions, but action. Now, I'm going to end here. <laughs> I'm preparing to end here. And not because I don't have more to say, but we're going to spend two weeks on this particular verse. This week, we wanted to give you a meta understanding of what this verse is talking about. Next week, we'll take a deeper dive into, into the particulars of what it means to walk in faith. But for now, this week, the emphasis on this, we must be prepared 
because our lives and our eternities are at stake. Since our eternity is at stake, how do we gauge if someone is prepared? How do we know if someone is prepared? We must ask ourselves five questions, five important questions to know if, we're being, if, if you are truly being prepared. This is the first question. Am I keeping watch for Christ? Am I keeping watch for Christ? Number two, am I faithfully following Christ? Number three, am I trusting Christ? Talk about this more next week. Number four, am I serving Christ with what he has given me? And then number five, am I serving Christians whom God has placed around me? Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you for the grace you've given us to know and be known by you. Thank you, God, that you have given us the great opportunity to know the promise of you coming to get us, Father. We don't know when your second coming will happen, but we are sure to know that it will come. Help us to be prepared. Help us to keep watch. Help us to be ready. Help us to to walk by faith and not simply by sight. May we continue to press towards that mark of the high calling that Paul describes in the book of Philippians. Lord, may we continue to press towards that mark. We love you and thank you in every way. Father, if there's someone in the sound of my voice who knows they're pretending with God, I pray that you would help them even now to be real with you and honest with you, to repent of their sins, to confess you as Lord and submit to your lordship over their life. God, may that happen even now. God, there's no pretending with you. You see us as we are, you accept us as you are and you love us as we are. How gracious are you towards us, our our God and King. We do love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The bread and wine that we're about to take speaks of the reality of God being our perfect and all-sufficient king. It speaks to the reality of him being our all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And by partaking of this meal, it proclaims more than just taking some bread and wine. It proclaims the truth of the reality of who Jesus is until he returns, according to 1 Corinthians 11, 26. At this time, I invite you to look in front of you in the pews and grab a communion cup. If you have confessed your sins and you are following Jesus today, we invite you to take this meal. If you are not doing that or have not done that, we ask that you refrain for this meal is only for those who are following Jesus as Lord and Savior. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and, and blessed it and broke it and said, And gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us take and eat that bread together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He then took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us drink that cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, but I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. 
We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.